today's episode is sponsored by Annunciation Designs. Okay, so I am always on the lookout for beautiful and creative ways to share the faith, and I absolutely adore, adore the designs from Elaine and her company, Annunciation Designs. Elaine told me her mission is to help families call to mind the sacred in the midst of the ordinary. Some of their most beloved products include the Catholic baby swaddles and hashtag Saint Goals teas for the whole family, which is just so fun, right? <laughs> I love that. Use coupon code MANNERS for 10% off of your order. This offer expires October 31st. And please note that the shop is closed for the month of September, but there is still plenty of time this month and October to get a head start on some holiday shopping. For more information, you can visit www.annunciationdesigns.com. While you're there, you can also be on the lookout for the monthly subscription letter called Wonder Lust Catholic. Subscribers receive a beautifully illustrated hand-lettered story each month written from the perspective of the fictional pilgrim Bona Therese. Thank you so much to Annunciation Designs for sponsoring this show, and please visit our website and theirs for more information. All right, Kane, thanks so much. Here's the show. You can typically do this over the phone? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we record, normally we record on Skype, but it's oh, okay. probably not. I think you're my only second in-person oh, interview. Cool. Most podcasters are a little bit more fancy and, and have two microphones, and okay. I'm, uh, I'm not quite there yet. About a week ago, my husband and I were fortunate enough to treat some new friends to dinner in our home. Alrighty. Yeah, I think we're good. So we're just going to start... Um, your basic story. Okay. So I like to tell people your 90 second bio, but then have that be a lead in to Made in His Image. This is Maura Presler, founder of Made in His Image, an organization which empowers and encourages women struggling through eating disorders, mental health difficulties, and even abuse. It is an absolutely wonderful, goodness, wonderful organization. And I was just so excited to speak with Maura about her experience and her mission. So we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to, in the course of our story, share raw audio of my chat with Maura and allow Maura's story of healing and hope to provide the framework for the healing and hope perhaps many of you seek in a world where all humans, but particularly women, never seem to quite be enough. But you may be asking yourself something, um, why? (laughs) Why in the middle of a season where we've mainly talked about the Catholic arts, why are we shifting our focus into topics which may seem to kind of derail a little bit from our season's focus on beauty? Well, it occurred to me as I began to map out storylines and ideas for the season that an honest discussion about beauty, capital B, right, cannot exist unless we address the cultural standards of beauty thrown our way each and every day. In other words, we cannot honestly address the spiritual necessity of beauty in our lives without addressing the ways beauty has been weaponized to actually hurt our relationship with God, both from outside and from within the church. Perfect. All right. So just a little bit about yourself, where you're from. 
So I grew up in northern New Jersey. I'm the fourth of seven children. I unfortunately grew up in a very abusive home, which um, caused me to question like God's presence and who he was as my father because there was such a disconnect um, because we, you know, we were quote unquote a Catholic family. We'd go to mass every Sunday, sometimes daily mass. And we went to Catholic school. And this whole time, you know, we were living in a very abusive home that no one knew about. It was very hush hush. So my upbringing really caused me to question my worth and my identity. And I questioned why these things were happening to me. And as a result, I developed a very serious eating disorder starting in eighth grade and was severely anorexic from 8th grade until around 11th grade. And when I eventually put the weight back on that the doctors wanted me to, um, I still had this just burning like desire to know like who I was, um, to know that I was loved, to know that I was wanted. My weight was never something that I had to worry about. I've, I had always been, you know, very athletic. Um, one of the tallest, thinnest girls in my class. So when I started losing weight, you know, people really started noticing, um, Hmm. And at my lowest weight, I was less than a lower. I was about forty pounds lighter than I am today. Oh my goodness! And um, I remember one night just laying in this, in this, in the doctor's office, and I could literally feel like my heart like struggling to beat. And it reminds me of the book that I read to my two boys, like the little engine that could, like chugging up the mountain. And I just like felt like my heart was just like, I was like trying to stay alive, but praise God. Um, I, 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 you know, I had a, a full recovery as, you know, as far as, you know, the weight goes. But like I said, I really still questioned my identity and worth, um, as a daughter of God and as a person. And it wasn't until I was in college that focus, the fellowship of Catholic university students came, um, to my campus. I went to Seton Hall university in New Jersey Yeah. and I was a division one runner in college. So being an athlete was a real challenge because, you know, you're constantly being weighed, you're constantly being compared to the other female athletes, and it's like you're just like never enough. If you're, you know, down a pound, it's like someone else is down more, or oh, if you get more muscle, it's like someone else has more. Huh. So I'm constantly just having this like running checklist in my head of like everything that I have to do. And I was invited to a varsity Catholic Bible study, which varsity Catholic is a division of focus. They deal, they work with the student athletes. So I was really intrigued by one of the missionaries that was on campus who really befriended me. And she just really poured her heart and soul, um, into, into me. Like she really showed me genuine love. And I felt like it was one of the first times in my life that I had been shown like genuine true love a lot of times um abuse survivors they have like a very like they're always looking to see like what someone can take from them so like I had a very like twisted view of friends and love and relationships um and it was through her 
Bible study that she um, encouraged me to go to India on a focus mission trip, which I did. And it was there that I really um, delved into my relationship with the Lord, um, who he is as my father and who I am as his daughter. That really propelled um, my healing and recovery. And I graduated from college and I spent a little time with focus, which was really challenging for me because I was really had so much that I was you know, had to heal from, Mm. from all the abuse. Um, I really struggled with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I went to the Institute of the Psychological Sciences in Arlington, Virginia, and they're um, a Catholic institute started by Father Benedict Rochelle, which they incorporate our Catholic faith with psychology. And they really helped me just kind of come up with a game plan, so to speak, of... um, what they suggested for my recovery and one of the things was to move away from new jersey the place where you know so much abuse and trauma had happened and they helped me find a catholic doctor in nashville tennessee um, a catholic psychologist and they recommended that i be in trauma therapy for at least two years so i was just really determined to you know devote this time to my healing it was really hard for me um, to, you know, leave focus. Um, but I called this doctor a week after, you know, being at the Institute of the Psychological Sciences. I spoke with him for 10 minutes. He really thought that he could help me. So I packed everything I owned into my little Honda and I moved to Nashville (laughs) and, um, I got three jobs so I could pay for all the care that I needed. Um, the therapy sessions were, you know, $200 a session. I was in therapy sometimes three times a week. Oh. My medication was $300 a bottle. I didn't have health care. Um, I worked really, really hard to get, you know, all the care that I needed, praise God. And he just always provided for me. This might be one of the most important episodes I've ever done. <laughs> An honest, real, raw discussion about how we have been hurt by perceptions of beauty. This is the story of the cost of curating beauty. Um, it was my doctor who really inspired me to start um, my nonprofit, Made in His Image, which helps women recovering from eating disorders and abuse and helps them see their their dignity and worth as daughters of God. He really inspired me to do something with what I had been through. And on one of the last sessions I was there, he turned to me and he said, you know, more everyone suffers, but it's what we do with that suffering that will make us a saint. And those words really just really hit home. They really struck me. And I didn't know anything about the nonprofit world, (laughs) social media, nothing. I just would, you know, meet up with people and I would be like, hey, I'll buy you lunch. Can you tell me about what you do? People that were in um, the field that I wanted to, you know, nonprofit world, business people, um, people who were social media gurus. And yeah, made in his image. Um, I started it and it's almost eight years old on September 13th, the feast of the exaltation of the cross. Amazing. 
So I'm curious. Well, first off, let's talk about what you do with Wade and His Image. What yeah. Is it, what are the exact kind of services that you provide? So we are, um, we do provide counseling scholarships. Um, I travel and speak a lot on college campuses and high school campuses. I lead um, retreats for girls. We have a counselor who is online. Um, we a lot of, but a lot of what we do is through like the on, online social media platform. As I was looking into starting a nonprofit, I realized there was there wasn't really that much online that spoke to the true like yearning and calling of a woman's heart. Yeah. Everything was so filters on everything and like just nothing really felt like real and raw something that I could really relate to so through our Facebook our Instagram our Twitter our blog hearing stories from other women who have been through um, traumatic events or you know eating disorders um, breaking the stigma of mental health that is really what you know we're trying to accomplish online to just break down those walls and I still think there's you know especially in the Catholic world, you know, I get a lot of emails from women thinking that, you know, you can just like, quote unquote, pray away, like your depression or your anxiety, or if you're struggling, it's because you're not praying enough. And this is exactly what we're trying to just break down and say that this is not, this is not true. You know, even some of the greatest saints, um, struggled with depression, St. Therese, St. Therese's father struggled greatly with depression. Um, there are so many Catholic saints that, you know, struggled with depression that were very, very holy. So, um, I'm just trying to point people to the truth and to, to genuine beauty and doing that by being real and raw with them and, you know, just showing them that everything is not always roses and butterflies, but, um, this is real life and, um, but it's, it, it pays to be authentic. It pays to, you know, put yourself out there and own your story. A few months ago in confession with a priest uh, who I adore, (laughs) I explained yet again my struggle with vanity. Do you ever have one of those like habitual sins that you feel like, I don't know, whenever you go into confession, you just want to say, you know, the usual, (laughs) right? (laughs) That for me, at least one of them is vanity. And with each baby, this overwhelming feeling that my looks, my body just aren't good enough, right? Has slowly grown to the point that I feel like when I look in the mirror, I'm not actually looking at beauty at all. But in this particular confession, my priest said something which kind of served as an intervention for me. He said, Jules, you are allowing the devil to take something which is intrinsically beautiful, my body, and turn it into something it was never meant to be. Perfect. Or at least perfect according to whatever the cultural standards happen to be of our time. And this moment stood out to me because it made me realize... My body is intrinsically beautiful. This idea kept spinning and spinning in my mind because my first instinct was to reject it, right? No, no, it's not. But what if it is? What if my body was as it is meant to be? 
These questions have been swirling around in my head, just as questions about the cultural standards of beauty have been swirling around in the broader culture too. Body positivity, healthy at every size, intentional eating, lots and lots of talk about beauty and our bodies. So I sought to find someone in the church, a faithful Catholic, who was also talking about these things to help us frame our discussion from the standpoint of faith. We're calling this first part, Curating Good Bodies. (laughs) And in my search for an expert, I found this woman. My name is Amanda Martinez Beck, and I am the author of Lovely, How I Learned to Embrace the Body God Gave Me. Amanda grew up in East Texas, where she lives today. She was raised a Protestant, but from a young age, Amanda experienced a slight pull in her heart to something more. But I was drawn to Jesus as a three-year-old through the practice of communion. Yes, my appetite drew me to Jesus, and my fascination with the, the cracker and the juice in my Protestant church was a foreshadowing of how God was going to use my my appetite, my hungers, and the, the sensations and f- desires of my body and my soul into the Catholic Church as an adult mother of two children pregnant with my third. There was something about Amanda's early story which I absolutely loved. You see, from a young age, even in her Protestant upbringing, Amanda was fascinated by the idea of eating God. Even in her monthly communion services in her Protestant church, she loved the idea of encountering God through the celebration of feast and food. As she got older, this fascination only grew, in fact. (laughs) As Amanda got married, had babies, she has four of them, she and her husband decided to come into the church because of their love and desire of the Eucharist. She wanted to encounter God himself in the form of bread and wine. And this unity of her desires, the desire for God in her Protestant youth, and the desire for God in her adult Catholic faith has allowed Amanda to accompany all sorts of people in their spiritual journeys. We're in the heart of Protestant land, and I love it because I'm a, I'm a storyteller, and I love being able to build bridges for people between Catholic and Protestant thinking. I'm fluent in both Catholic and Protestant, so I can share the differences and the similarities, and I just, I love it. But her desire for God in bread and wine wasn't the only thing planted from an early age in Amanda's heart. So was, as for so many of us, certain standards of physical beauty. And for Amanda, it began in a really beautiful way, right? With the most beautiful woman in her life, her mom. So the the picture of beauty when I was a child was my mom. She was the most gorgeous person that I had ever seen. And still in her 60s is just stunningly beautiful. And when I knew her (laughs) as a mom, um, she, she was not the cultural standard of physical like body beauty to her perception like she thought she always needed to be smaller I remember just being fascinated that my dad loved my mom so much and thought she was beautiful no matter what she was wearing or doing and even though to our family's understanding was in a quote bigger body than others that we saw on tv because she was just always kind and Um, she gave me life. From a young age, Amanda was completely fascinated by her mom's beauty. 
but sometimes what should have been a childhood wonder and awe at the gift of her mother and her beauty inside and out instead would become a preoccupation with beauty as it relates to size. And it is here that the seeds of an ugly message slowly crept into Amanda's heart. The, the thing that was surprising to me was that someone would choose to continue loving someone that wasn't thin. And I, that's a huge thing for me to look back on as a child and have that understanding that our culture said that if you're not thin, you're not worth loving. And me, I was in a fat body as a child. So... Um, and, and our family is very focused on health and wellness. My parents are both in the medical field and my body didn't conform. And so I have never had a problem knowing that I was beautiful. Like I, my face is beautiful. I love my features, but I always felt like my body was too big to be beautiful. And this, of course, manifested itself in the everyday thinking of a young girl who simply wanted to be loved, wanted to fit in. Amanda told me, quote, I don't remember a time in my whole life when I wasn't in some way dieting, which of course is heartbreaking. And some of her most painful memories, or at least some of the most damaging messages she heard as a little girl came from the people of God came from within the boundaries of her own church communities. From the pastor making self-deprecating fat jokes, to the diet devotional studies put on at her church, to the entire community being encouraged to participate in what is known in evangelical circles as the Daniel Fast. This was not my church, but Rick Warren wrote a book. that He wrote The Purpose Driven Life, but he also wrote a book called The Daniel Fast. And in the fast, in the book about the fast, he said it was in the middle of this huge church baptism service, and he was having trouble dipping, you know, the Protestant practice of dipping full bodies into the water. And he was straining under their weight, and he, he shamed the people who were coming for the sacrament for being too fat. And that, that, is, that is wrong. <laughs> Amanda mentioned to me a book she once read called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about how bodies adjust after trauma. In other words, even if our brains don't remember, our bodies will, right? And when you suppress or give people less food that their bodies say we need, then primal hunger kicks in. Research says 90% of diets fail, but we always think the failure is on us. If we took any other drug that had a 90% failure rate, then we would, like, it would be banned. Now, some of you may be thinking, as I did again and again and again <laughs> in my chat with Amanda, how on earth am I only now hearing about Amanda? <laughs> or maybe you're thinking, why now? Why not when I was 16 and struggling with an eating disorder? Or as the first time postpartum mom coming to terms with the reality that my body would never be the same again? Why am I now just hearing about her and her incredible message? Well, we'll get to that part of the answer in a little bit. <laughs> but first, the thing is, Amanda and her writings have actually been making a huge impact in the lives of women for some time now, beginning with one of the most important blog posts she has ever written. I use my blog to 
externally process. And so as weaving those things got together, I've struggled with depression, anxiety, and feeling less than because of my body and my mental health. And I, um, I shared the blog post. It was called to all, all the fat girls and it spread like wildfire. And I realized that this is something that people needed to be hearing. I was not at a place of loving my body when I wrote it, but I was at a place of learning that my weakness tethered me to Jesus in a way that nothing else could. Amanda brought something up with me again and again. She said whenever she thinks about her body, she asks, do I take the church at her word? We see time and time again in church teaching, specifically Amanda pointed me to paragraph 364 of the Catechism, that we are obliged to consider our bodies as good. And something is good when it fulfills its purpose. So if my body is a part of me and I was created for a relationship with God, then when I look to my body, I need to see it in terms of its relationship to Jesus. And so it was never a set of principles for me to memorize. It it was always looking to the relationship of my body to to Jesus's body as a man seated on the throne of heaven with wounds still in his arm, his hands and side and feet that he has not, he is not ashamed of the story that his body tells and that I don't have to be either. Oh my goodness. What freedom that is. And so falling in love with my body, it's, it's a day by day thing, but I can always come and and sit before the Lord in the blessed sacrament and sit beneath a crucifix and know that my wounds, my limitations, they are, they are good and beautiful. And if, if that doesn't make you want to love Jesus, then I don't know what to tell you. Uh, That is how I ended up in this daily practice of loving my body and affirming its goodness And then I'm a teacher, so teaching everybody around me very loudly (laughs) of the truth I've learned. But there is perhaps one other reason why maybe you haven't heard of Amanda yet. And it might be hard for many of us to think about. When I started thinking about this topic, I was curious about how the church has both helped and not helped in our understanding of the basic fact that our bodies, all bodies, are good. And something Amanda said stuck out to me. She said, Jules, when is the last time you were at a conference and saw a woman on stage who was obese or large? Truly, in all of the conferences and talks I've been to over the years, it is extremely rare to see a speaker, especially a keynote speaker, be a large person. And this gets to the heart of Amanda's message. My dream is to be a fat woman on a stage in front of thousands of people. And I say that specifically because we don't see fat women on stages unless they're comedians and fat comedians are awesome. I have laughed at many of their jokes, Um, but oh my goodness, the church is in desperate need of fat saints. I can't really put into words how much my talk with Amanda changed me and my own spiritual journey. We talked about how the church and the people of God have continued to moralize food, 
We talked about how some food is considered bad and other is considered good in our culture, right? We talked about food as a blessing and a joy and how when we call certain food unclean, our brains and our hearts, however unintentionally, translate that into the people who eat those foods. We talked about instilling a love of our bodies in children, encouraging childlike wonder and awe at the gift of creation. And we talked about how no one is immune to the shaming mentality of so many in the world. For Amanda, all of these conversations derive from the basic fact that our central mission, our central identity really, is not to make cultural standards of health into an idol, nor is it to feel as if our physical beauty will never be enough. Instead, for Amanda, it's pretty simple. We already have a guide of a perfect woman, right? Truly perfect. (laughs) And it's not in our magazines or health journals. We have to recognize that the purpose of our bodies is not to be smaller. And for women, that is the message. Be smaller, be quieter. And when I read the scripture and I see Mary (laughs) in in you know, Luke chapter two, when one saying yes to God, to the angel, and then arriving at Elizabeth and giving this amazing kick butt praise song of, you know, he has humbled the proud and he has given gifts to the poor. Like she is not quiet. And she does, she says yes to God in her heart. And that aspect of being Catholic has just been so amazing that I have our blessed mother to pastor me and guide me in being this loud, big woman because she is the queen of the universe. And here's the thing, the central aspect we should emulate from Mary was her selfless love, right? She is the greatest model of love, second only to her son. But as Amanda pointed out to me again and again in our chat, how can we be expected to love others when we loathe the bodies that God has placed us in? We cannot love our neighbor if we do not love ourselves. So if if I despise my body, and yet I'm called to care for bodies the least of these, there will be a disconnection between my ability, even empowered to the Holy Spirit, and my ability to care for them if I despise my own body. There's this one story for Amanda which encapsulates how we should understand and love our bodies, how beautiful our bodies really are. And it's a story which, at first glance, might not seem like one about beauty. You know, it reminds me of the story of St. Lawrence, the deacon in the early church at Rome, who, you know, especially in our culture, we, we think perfection and ability are the judges, like the standards of beauty. Um, St. Lawrence was called before the Roman prefects and said, you know, give us the treasure of the church and all the other six deacons in Rome had been killed and he would be killed after he gave it. So he asked for three days and he went around gathering the treasures of the church when he gave away all the money (laughs) to the poor and he brought the sick and the wounded and the lame to the Roman government and said, these are the treasures of the church. So learning that beauty and treasure, me and my weakness, whatever that is, 
is actually beautiful. That, that was such a turn on, on its head of what I had understood growing up. curious because you mentioned so much of what you do is kind of ministering through social media and yet I would imagine a lot of women a lot of their struggles stem in part from the seed that might have been sowed through a lot of these kind of curated perfect perfect body perfect this on Social media, have you seen a lot of that? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, that is, yeah, I've seen, I've got, I've gotten thousands of messages from girls like that. Um, one in particular, really, um, you know, I always think about this girl. Um, I've only spoken with her a couple times, but she was saying, she wrote to me one night and she said that she was looking up online. She was just like scrolling through her Instagram, feeling really, really alone. Her boyfriend had just broken up with her and she was like comparing herself to other people she saw online and thoughts of suicide just like flashed through her mind and she said she had a plan like for suicide and she was searching online for being enough and she came to my website because our you know our tag is like um our tagline is you are beautiful you are valuable you are enough so she, she wrote to me and she said, you know, I just sat there in tears that night and just read through your whole blog roll. And at the end of every blog post, I write, P.S. You are enough. And she said that no one in her life had ever told her that she was enough, that she was lovable. And she just wrote these beautiful words to me. And she's like, you know, I, I didn't take my life that night because of made in his image, because I read like the truth that was out there and it just made me so sad to hear that you know praise god that she didn't take her life but it's so sad that there are these women out there that are just comparing themselves to models or you know airbrushed faces Mm -hmm. and this is just not real life Mm -hmm. um so it is i'm so glad that we're out there to just shine a light in the darkness. This is part two, curating images. As I talked to Mora, I kept thinking back to the small ways myself and pretty much all of us <laughs> are made to think that we are not enough. We are not thin enough, pretty enough, tan enough, right? You get the picture. And by the way, I know some of our male listeners might be tempted to, I don't know, turn off this episode, think it's not for them, I don't know, but I can't stress enough how important these messages are for all of us. We are all at some point told that we are not enough, right? Whether we're not man enough or not woman enough. And so many times it begins with the things we consume primarily our media. So I decided that in order to understand just how prevalent it is for media companies and clothing brands and all sorts of industries to play off of our existing insecurities to make us feel as if we are always going to be inadequate, I decided to reach out to a company who has actually tried to do things the right way. My name is Mary Rose Somariba and my title is Associate Editor at Verily Magazine. 
Mary Rose has been involved with the editorial team at Verily since the very beginning in 2012, when co-founders Kara Eschbach and Janet Sum connected with Mary Rose about an idea for a new kind of women's magazine. And I do know the original mission, which very much in tune with where we are still, and that uh, tagline they formed back then was less of who you should be, more of who you are. And that was aimed at empowering and inspiring women to be the best versions of themselves. So by should be, we mean less of what everyone else is telling us to be and more of who we really are and what really represents our flourishing. At the time of its founding and continued in the mission today, the goal was to provide relatable content and imagery that looked like real women we actually know. Articles focused on relationship content that felt relatable to women's experiences, culture content that wasn't partisan-driven, lifestyle content meant to bring more order to our lives. You get the picture. (laughs) Now, originally, the team's intent was to publish a print magazine to go toe-to-toe with the, let's just say, uh, different (laughs) examples of women's magazines on the newsstands today. But in the age that we are in, funding for print was hard to come by, as you can imagine. So the team moved to entirely digital content, but with the original dream still alive. But the hope for uh, print is still remains in many of our readers' minds and in our own editorial perspective, because we know a lot of women still hope for that. And we do think it, that there's a lot of room for that to happen and to succeed. In fact, when you look at print today, a lot of people think about how it's dismal and suffering, but women's magazines pick up rate is the highest of all publications. And so there's a lot of hope. And right now we have started this newsletter subscription service called Verily Yours, which all the revenue we get from that is going to go toward the goal of getting back to print. There's a link to Verily Yours on our website, by the way. Please, please check it out. And honestly, it feels as if Verily Magazine, both digital and print, are more necessary than ever. Verily started back in 2012, which, though Facebook had been around for about eight years, I think, at that point, something like that, social media didn't have quite the stretch as we know it today. I don't think I even owned a smartphone in 2012, but admittedly, I was a little late to the game. (laughs) But in the barrage of images thrown our way today, women need a professional outlet doing something different, allowing women to be as they are. What we found when Verily was starting in 2012 was there was research that had recently come out that revealed that women who flipped through a woman's magazine after three minutes felt worse about themselves. So we know we it's needed because women still want content that relates to them, that brings lifts them up, that intersects with their lives, the unique situations women experience that might be different than men. But we don't want something that brings us down. We certainly don't need that. I don't think most of us need a scientific study to prove this fact for us, right? <laughs> we experience it all of the time. The problem with curated images, whether in print or in digital, is that we feel as if we are never quite good enough. But not in the spiritual sense, right? Not in the sense that we should be striving to be the best version of ourselves. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. 
<laughs> or because of who God made us to be. Now, curated images present the idea that perfect is attainable in this life so long as we do this or buy that or lose this amount of weight or eat this for dinner. You know, you get the picture. It is exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting. I don't know how else to put it. And we know this by now, but I will remind you again, listeners, that this is not true beauty. This is a view that we have in all of our content to see women as whole people, not just women as something pretty to look at or women as, you know, just one facet. Instead, we want to capture the many different facets of who our readers are. And um, we want to honor that, not exploit weaknesses or insecurities to get hits. You find a lot of women's content is just trying to say things that make women worry. Gosh, am I dating all wrong? Or gosh, am I not looking just the right way I should to appeal to men? Or anyway, and, the, and a lot of them do feed off of those insecurities and don't help women feel better about themselves while they are reading that content. So we have the goal of lifting women up, of making them feel empowered and making them feel connected or facilitate their connecting with their own strengths, which, you know, we're not going to tell them what they are. Every woman's unique, but, you know, they're all different great things that we want to connect women with, things that'll empower her to to just reach her own potential. I don't think anyone would deny that objectification is one of the central problems of our culture, or as Mary put it, quote, it has fingerprints all over our societal ills. And Verily's mission to lift up women, I think, is perfectly encompassed in one of their central policies, no Photoshop. And it's because we care about what's real. I think from the beginning, you know, there was just so much Photoshop happening. Re people, you know, expect it, but then also people see it and, and they feel critical. They're not sure what's real in imagery. And so there's a sense of disappointment. I can never reach that. I can never, that's not what a real woman looks like. And so, yeah, in the very early days, it was a decision made that we will not Photoshop any woman, um, and we know that, you know, viewers, readers, we can't trust things. Often they're trying to find things like, I can figure it out. It was Photoshopped or I can, you know, and you'll see on social media, like that picture on that cover was Photoshopped. Look how crazy. Um, and people, you, you know, they're looking for something they can trust. And if it's altered from reality, even just a bit. It is not something that you're sure is real. Over time, being exposed to images that aren't real, that aren't realistic even, lessen our view of ourselves. We become less satisfied with reality itself. But when we see images of women as we really are, <laughs> we in turn accept ourselves as we are too. <laughs> And this idea, which is revolutionary, and so, so sad to say that it's revolutionary, by the way, because it seems to be something we should just expect from all women's magazines. This idea has carried over into their writing as well. And then in addition, there's a way I like to view it as like a no airbrushing policy in our content. We like to be frank with our with our readers in our all of our content um, to not, you know, not be airbrushing things or, you know, too fluffy. We want to be just straightforward and give women very quality content. Women are unique. There is not one measuring stick of what we all should look like, right? And because of this uniqueness, content is crucial in how we come to understand true 
beauty. There are lots of different women's experiences, diverse stories, stories of overcoming, but the gist of it is this. If the imagery is not curated, then the content cannot be either, right? And in that sense, you want the content, like the imagery, to actually reflect reality. And this no air brushed content policy is one of the main reasons why Verily continues to have such a loyal group of readers. If there was a chart, there's really helpful magazines like Better Homes and Gardens or Real Simple or things that are just not going to, that are going to be helpful to you, but then they might not intersect with your experience as a millennial woman. And that is where Verily readers find that there's nothing else meeting that intersection. So there are sites out there that that are women's content, but that are continuing to feed to insecurities. And after a while, I think women do just get tired of that. And and they might also subscribe to Real Simple just to get something they know won't do that. But they also have a hunger for something that'll actually give them the fashion content they're looking for or give them the uh, relationship advice they're looking for or cultural or lifestyle content that isn't going to make them feel worse about themselves at the same time. So I do think there must, there is a sense of just getting overwhelmed with at some point people reach a limit <laughs> and they, they just want to change. And that's when a lot of readers find our site and then are very loyal to us. How often do you see situations of abuse so intricately tied up? with eating disorders or vice all the time it's so closely connected um like I said I think there's a lot of like misconceptions about eating disorders where people think like oh it's just about the food but it's not it's about like control and how these girls these women want control and as abuse survivors they have been so controlled that this is a way that they are able to take some control back on their life. So I see it all the time, every day. It's really sad. Which brings me to the closing part of our story today. Part three, curating perfection. There's a scripture verse I'm sure most of us are familiar with. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, I believe. And it says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, on the one hand, this passage is actually incredibly reassuring, right? (laughs) We are never, ever, ever told in scripture or in the tradition of the church that we need to seek the approval and standards posed by our culture. Never. Their standards of size, their standards of beauty, their standards of work. Never are we told that the culture has the answers. But the question is, of course, what next, right? Because the rather disarming part of this verse is that we still are supposed to seek perfection. But what is perfection, right? In a world where I can literally take 15 selfies to find just the right one with just the right kind of smile, I can make everything seem perfect. But we know, of course, that's not right either. In our discussion of beauty this season, beauty is a gateway to a deeper relationship with God. Beauty is our gateway on our quest for true perfection. But even that seems so daunting. (laughs) Okay, so I reached out to someone who could help me make sense of how to be perfect in a world of curated perfection. 
Well, my name is Colleen Carroll Campbell. I'm an author, print and broadcast journalist, a former presidential speechwriter, and I'm also a wife and homeschooling mother of four. Colleen has decades-long careers working in print, radio, and broadcast journalism. She is also a best-selling author, and it's her latest book called The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's, is the reason I reached out to her today. Well, I wrote The Heart of Perfection because of a personal struggle that I had with perfectionism, but also because I was seeing it reflected in the wider culture, and I thought there was more to it than just my own personal struggle. Colleen's book speaks of this unspoken but oh so important topic for so many of us today, spiritual perfectionism. I say unspoken because I think many of us are used to recognizing the difference between real life and curated images, right? How many times have you looked at someone's Instagram and thought, okay, there is no way their hair looks that good all the time. (laughs) But spiritual perfectionism is completely different because on the flip side, I can't tell you how many times I see how someone else is living out their faith, especially in their family lives. And I just assume that they're so much holier than me. They're doing so much more in their faith. And Colleen wrestled with a lot of these same revelations in her own journey. When she looked at her life, she began to grapple and unravel the lies at the root of her perfectionism, almost all of which wrapped around her image of God. And I believe, even though I would have never said this, that I thought I had to be a certain way in order for God to love me, that I had to, in a certain sense, work my way to heaven. Now, again, I'm, I'm a good Catholic. I know my catechism. I know my Bible. I know that's not what, what the Lord tells us. But I think a lot of us know that intellectually, and yet we struggle in our daily lives to live like we believe in the reality of God's unconditional love. But this spiritual perfectionism all came to a head when Colleen became a mom. The perfectionism she often sought in her professional life simply wasn't going to cut it in motherhood. I think a lot of us can relate to that. (laughs) About 10 years ago, Colleen gave birth to twins and quickly found out that in motherhood, we often make mistakes. Go figure. Things weren't unfolding exactly as she thought. So she slowly began to see that the demand of flawlessness that she had sought in her motherhood wasn't going to work. And it's here where she started to peel back the layers to uncover a much deeper problem. And that's where I began to kind of peel back the layers of this problem. And that's where I started to encounter the way in which my faith, which should have rescued me from perfectionism in many ways, was contributing to it because I had misunderstood some key things about my faith. And in the heart of perfection, I talk about not only my own personal struggle and this struggle that I see reflected widely in our culture, particularly in the lives of women, but also the lives of what I call the recovering perfectionist saints, these men and women who were in this same boat once and only when they began to change their ideas of perfect to to allow God to purify their own dreams of perfection that's when you begin to see the real fruit in their lives. That's when you begin to see authentic holiness emerge. The Heart of Perfection is a blend of her personal story of perfectionism and the story of seven recovering saints and actually one heretic who unfortunately never recovered. And that, in a really weird way, might be my favorite story. (laughs) It's a fascinating story in the book. But part of perfectionism came from the recognition that this is not simply a church 
problem, but this is a huge cultural problem as well. I do think perfectionism is a deeper cultural problem, and and I think it's quite universal. And it's interesting because I will give speeches on this. I'll talk to folks who've who've read the book, and they'll say, you know, I never thought of myself as a perfectionist because my kitchen isn't clean, or I don't alphabetize my CDs, or I don't color code my socks, or whatever their image of perfectionism is. And I think it's true that, that very few people would be perfectionist in every area of their lives. There are a lot of areas in my life where I'm pretty easygoing. But I think there's usually, if we're honest with ourselves, at least one area of our lives where we find ourselves exercising more control and um, holding more unrealistic expectations than we should. If we dig deeper, if we dig beneath the messages of our culture, we will see the spiritual roots of this quest for perfectionism. There's something deep within us that longs for perfection, right? Because God put that longing there because ultimately it is a longing for him. And the problem is when we start substituting our own ideas of what the perfect is for his, when we start substituting our own game plan for attaining holiness instead of following his, when we focus more on perfectionist striving, which our culture really encourages to one degree or another, and we'd forget that true gospel perfection, God's dream of perfect, is about surrender, not striving. So what's at the heart of this? What did Colleen discover as she went on this journey into the heart of spiritual perfectionism? Well, there's something out there, of course, that central sin, that pesky companion of all of our lives. And I think that can be the real danger for serious Christians today is we say, well, I'm not I'm not worried about abs of steel and getting my kid into Harvard. I'm worried about glow in the dark holiness and perfect charity. All right. But are you in some sense competing then with your church friends over which books you've read, how many service projects you do, um, how you're raising your kids, how many kids you have and on and on and on. We can find innumerable ways to compete with each other and take our eyes off the prize, which is what is God calling you to today? And it might look totally different than what he's calling someone else to. Something else occurred to me when I was talking to Colleen, and it's something she wrote a lot about in The Heart of Perfection. When we subscribe to these curated ideals of perfection, whether the cultural perfection we see in the images or the spiritual pride we hold in our hearts during our journeys of faith, we become stripped of our joy. And as a result, we become the very opposite of exactly who God calls us to be. But he came primarily to have this personal relationship with us, to connect us with his body, uh, the church, to save us, to, to bring us to the joy of eternal life. And when we start losing sight of that, when we lose sight of the fact that, hey, this world is not all there is, and we should always have that joy of Christ. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, and we need to actively cultivate it. And that means that sometimes we have to do what some of these perfectionist saints did um, that I write about in Heart of Perfection, where they took steps to distance themselves from those peoples, those situations, those habits that they knew leached their joy and led them into sin. We need to be willing to do the same thing. And for a lot of us, I think that means less screen time, more face-to-face time with the people and the loved ones who bring us joy. And so as someone who has dove into the question of perfectionism and how to combat it, I asked Colleen about her practical tips, right? (laughs) How to combat 
the quest for unhealthy standards of perfectionism, whether cultural or spiritual. And she gave me the standard replies initially, right? Dive more into the word of God, talk to Jesus about his plan for your life, right? Put down the screens, of course, quit the never ending game of comparison. You get the picture. But then there was this final tip, this delightful final thought, a habitual desire to surrender our will, our plans to his. You know, we're told from the time we're little, if we grow up in the church, God is love, God loves you. And you hear it so many times that it can feel like a cliche, a meaningless one. But really, there is no more fundamental truth of our faith than that God truly would have died just for us, just for one of us, right? And that mercy, that mercy that we see in the parable of the prodigal son, that's the mercy that's waiting for us. Not just after those big falls that, you know, um, Paul being a murderer, Augustine being this, you know, ex-playboy. You know, it's also those little slips, the ones that we think, really, am I still struggling with this after all these years? Am I still struggling with perfectionism? Don't I know better? It's always just turning and receiving that loving embrace of our Heavenly Father instead of getting all caught up in our perfectionist red tape. So if I had to sum up the message of these seven recovering perfectionist saints, or at least what it's meant to be, it's all about surrender and about leaning into God's unconditional love and believing that love is real, not just for the next guy, but for me. It's getting harder to separate when you're farther. I feel out of place, out of place. It's like your gravity is beckoning, begging me to stay in your beautiful love, your beautiful, beautiful. sat in my dining room for a half an hour, diving into the ways she and her ministry are trying to combat the cultural standards of beauty, which seem to be destroying an entire generation of young women. It's really sad. Our sweet husbands watched the craziness in my backyard unfold. There are six boys between us. And we sat and we talked about the gift of her mission and her life. 
But there was this one line that stood out to me, this one line that kept repeating in my head over and over after she left. Maura said, Jules, I just want to tell the truth. (laughs) And isn't that (laughs) at the heart, the ultimate purpose really of true beauty? You see, the gift of beauty can only change our lives insofar as its relation to truth to actually point us to the truth of the faith. If it doesn't do this, if it tries to obscure itself into whatever bends of the culture happen to be, right? Then we are stripping beauty of its ability to be a gift. We aren't allowing beauty, allowing God really, to usher us into an actual relationship with him. In other words, when our idea of beauty is manipulated, is curated, then so will be our idea of God. You are lucky to encounter the mercy of God through people, Mm -hmm. through two individual people. I am curious how the church, how you have seen the church helping women and men, obviously, too, um, but, you know, I'm thinking women in particular with this struggle, and perhaps maybe areas that the church has failed as well, or ways that we can be better. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a lot of um, retreats out there, there's a lot of books out there, there's a lot of programs out there, Um, but I think that one thing the church can do better, and I think one thing we all can do better at is really stopping and listening to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the people, you know, this this focus missionary Mandy, who really reached out to me, and she just cared. Like mm-hmm. I could just tell, like she just genuinely cared about me, and the way she listened to me, like I really felt heard by her. Mm-hmm. And I think as a as a church, as a society, we don't do a very good job of stopping and listening to people and really caring about them. And maybe, you know, I receive so many messages from women and while I try to hear them, I'm always like pointing, trying to point them in the direction of someone who can really help them, who like, I can't give them what they need, but if we can't help someone, we can at least be kind to them and show them the face of Jesus and perhaps give them like a resource to of someone who can help them and i think just with all the abuse scandals like in the church um it's been hard for me to watch because i feel like we need to do a better job as a church of of hearing these people of hearing their pain um you know jesus came and he entered into our brokenness and I think the church needs to do a better job of entering into the brokenness of these women. I'm so grateful for what you do. Really. Thank you. I'm really, really humbled. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, f- please feel free to check out um, our website, www.madeinhisimage.org. And you can find all the links to our social media, our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on there and if you have a blog post you'd like to submit or share a story with me feel, please feel free to email me at mora at made in his image.org awesome. Awesome.
we check on the crazies? Yeah. Maybe you just want to hang in here a little bit longer. <laughs> I'm okay telling them that it just was such a long interview. <laughs> Thank you so, so much to all the incredible women we talked to today. <laughs> oh my goodness, thank you to Mora. Please visit her website, madeinhisimage.org. Thank you to Amanda. Please visit our website for information about her book, Lovely. Thank you to Mary Rose. Please visit our website for information about Verily and their new subscription service, Verily Yours. And thank you to Colleen. On our website, we also have information about how to buy her book, The Heart perfection. Thank you to our sponsor today, Elaine from Annunciation Designs. Please visit Annunciation Designs for more information about their wonderful product. And thank you so much to Dana Catherine for her just awesome, awesome song, Beautiful Love. Uh, that song is off of her EP called Nothing in This World. It's an amazing EP, so please look on our website for more information on how to purchase her music. All right, gang. Thanks so much to all the amazing listeners. I'm just so grateful. It's been such a wonderful journey to be on with you this season. We'll see you in a few weeks.